the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and welcome to the Cycling Podcast. My name is Lionel Burney. No Daniel Freiber this week because he is somewhere between Paris and Nice on the road for ITV Television's Daniel Freiber this week. He is covering the Race to the Sun. So I'm going to truncate his uh, now traditional extended intro. So the people who love Daniel's long introductions will be jeering, but those who don't will be cheering. And uh, in Daniel's absence, I'm joined by two experts to help me see clearly through the dust thrown up by the white roads of Tuscany at the weekend in no particular order. Edward Pickering. Ed has spent more than two decades in cycling journalism. He's been deputy editor of Cycle Sport, editor of Pro Cycling, and now is the editor of Rouleur magazine. You may have heard him recently on our Friends of the Podcast special, the summer of 2012, where we revisited the Bradley Wiggins Tour de France with a decade's worth of hindsight. What you might not know is that Ed and I once went to Belgium, the Netherlands and northern France to ride chunks of all of the major classics. Do you remember that, Ed? The classics in a weekend trip? I do remember it well, yes. It was um, was rather cold and wet, if I remember rightly. It was very cold and very wet. We rode, well, the Meur de Huy, we rode the Meur and Bosberg, we rode the Arenberg Forest. I got in a grump and uh, cut out quite a bit of the Ghent-Wevelgem course that we were going to do, but I did ride the Kemmelberg. Uh, quite a cold, wet day. We also rode uh, the last stretch of the Milan-San Remo course once together, didn't we, on a much nicer, drier, brighter day. Much barmier climbs. Yeah, on that Belgian one, we did actually ride Liège, Baston-Liège in the snow, um, just like Bernardino, we had a lot in common with him at that point. And yeah, Milan San Remo, the last it's the last fifty k or so, wasn't it? Beautiful, f- like rolling roads, lovely smooth tarmac, warm weather. Um, really enjoyed that one, apart from the uphill bits. A ride that I'm going to revisit in a week or so's time. Looking forward to that. Friends of the podcast will uh, be able to listen to my adventures on the uh, Ligurian coast as I ride uh, the climbs, including the Cipressa and the Poggio. Uh, the one classic we've not ridden together, Ed, is Strada Bianca. But fortunately, we have Lizzie Banks with us, the only one of us to have actually raced Strada Bianca and so can talk with some degree of authority, a degree of authority really that the rest of us can only dream of. Lizzie will, of course, be a familiar voice to those of you who listen to the cycling podcast Feminine and to Service Course, making her first appearance on the cycling podcast coverage of the 2023 classics but probably not the last she is also of course a professional rider for ef education tibco svp a double stage winner at the giro and has recently relocated from the seven hills of sheffield to the countless climbs of the french alps welcome lizzie thank you lionel oh i'm very happy to be back i've been waiting two and a half years for this call up since we were last together on the grandest tour at the end of 2020 you're looking at me with confusion because you can't even remember It's been such a long time, but I've been waiting patiently and finally I'm getting the big call up to be here with you today to talk about Strada Bianca. Very excited. I'm just staggered that you've forgotten our um, episodes Arrivé last spring where we were (laughs) talking about Paris-Roubaix and Liège-Bastogne-Liège. But don't worry, I I won't take that personally. Well, that's, you know, Arrivé is a sideshow to the main main podcast, I would say. So... um, I'm back on the main podcast and my, my cat is actually cheering behind. I don't know if you can hear. <laughs> she's cheering because she's so happy that I'm I'm back on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you to my fans. Well extricated from that one, Lizzie. Before we get to the news roundup, a very quick 
question for both of you. Imagine we're in a pizzeria in Siena. Uh, Ed first, what would you have on your pizza? Uh, oh, given there's a tomato shortage in the UK at the moment, I'm missing tomatoes terribly. It'd have to be just a regular margarita with, with lovely, fresh, delicious Italian tomatoes on the top. I miss them so much. Oh, the classic. And what about you, Lizzie? Well, I was actually going to say a margarita, and I feel like I shouldn't now because margarita is the classic thing that you should have. And my husband tells me that you can tell the quality of a pizzeria by uh, by their margarita because it, it should be, you know, it is the most simple and the most original pizza there is. So would have to be a margarita, the classic, for a classic. You're going for the pineapples, Lionel? I was going to say, yeah, deep pan with pineapples just to annoy Daniel in the unlikely event that he's listening. Oh, you know what? You um, could get some cheese in the crust as well. Oh, yeah. Or little hot dogs in the crust, maybe. I know that's incredibly popular And some garlic dip Italy. on the side as well. <laughs> Let's not enrage Daniel too much. Uh, well, maybe we will. What are your views on a post 11 o'clock cappuccino? One word answer, yes or no, Ed? Yes, absolutely. Lizzie? No, Lizzie? don't drink coffee. Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, well, 2-1 to the uh, to, to permit the post-11 o'clock cappuccino. Uh, let's crack on with the news roundup, shall we? We're obviously going to be focusing on Strada Bianca in this episode. Um, well, this, the women's race was SD Works cleaning up, Demi Vollering and Lotta Capecchi doing their best to ensure a dead heat in the Piazza del Campo before Tom Pidcock flew to victory in the men's race. The big story in the run-up to the race was that Wout van Aert was not going to take part. We already knew that Tadej Pogacar was not going to ride. Initially, uh, Wout van Aert said he'd missed a few days of his training in Tenerife and uh, didn't want to risk riding Strada Bianca at anything less than his best form. It now turns out that he may have missed a couple of weeks of training, and, uh, well, we'll see how he goes when he returns to action, which is uh, due to be in Tirreno Adriatico, which is getting underway as we speak. A busy-ish week of racing. Uh, there was Le Samin, which came a couple of days after the opening weekend. The women's race was won by Marta Bastianelli, the men's race was won by Milan Menton of Lotto Destiny with Ugo Ofstetter in second place, just as he was last year. Sudal Quickstep had another bad day because their top sprinter Fabio Jakobsen crashed. And then Kasper Askelin went down with Dries de Bont in a bit of a freak crash in the final 600 metres. Sticking with Belgium for now, the Grand Prix Criquillion, Sam Wellsford of DSM continued his good start to the season, beating that man Menton into second place. And then came the Grand Prix Jean-Pierre Montserrat and the controversial sprint at Gerben Tysons of Antomarche, given the verdict ahead of Caleb Ewan, a really close finish, certainly a photo finish, and the second time this season that Ewan has been done in a photo finish. Remember, he was beaten by Tim Malia at the UAE Tour, and I think on both occasions, fairly hard done by, because the pictures that TV viewers were given were inconclusive, to say the least. What did you think of it, Lizzie? I completely agree with you. I think in the first... You know, the first time this happened in UAE Tour, I felt very, very strongly that the judges should have awarded a tie. And they are so, so reluctant to do so. And I don't really understand why, because, I mean, in situations like this, it, you, it's just so unfair when it's, it's clearly, you know, it's clear to everybody else that you, you know, you, it's splitting hairs to decide who won. They don't then release a finished photo that actually proves who is the winner that they that they've announced it really just feels like they've just tossed a coin um and you know sometimes it's you know sometimes there isn't 
there isn't anything between these riders and you do just both share the first place and I think Caleb Ewan took the first one very well he took both of them very well actually but um in the race yesterday he you know he's then gone on to social media and and there's been a lot of photos out there that really show that it looks like he actually crossed the line first and he's kind of said well I don't know what you guys think but I'm pretty sure I won um and I think it's really it's really tough for that rider um especially in UAE when there was nothing to tell between them. But then now it's like you're looking at photos where you really think that for all intents and purposes, Caleb's won, but then somebody else has been announced as the winner and it just feels, it feels very, very unfair. I think there's a pressure on the jury to come up with a winner because obviously the podium presentation, you know, very unsatisfying to have a dead heat at the end of any race. Uh, there is a provision in the UCI rules to rerun the last kilometre. I'm not sure whether, uh, I mean, I know it's been done I know it's been done in uh, in junior races because I, I remember a junior Belgian national title being decided with uh, two riders who couldn't be split um, racing the last kilometre again. Uh, would have to look up what year that was. But, um, I mean, Ed, we've seen these really um, close finishes, but at bigger races where the photo finish technology is better, at least there's more faith in the verdict. I'm thinking back to the Brabantse Appeal for women in 2021, where Ruth Winder beat uh, Demi Vollering. And uh, yeah, Tom Pidcock and Wout Van Aert at Amstel Gold. Uh, th- those photo finish pictures were, you know, the with the cameras that are not just taking a photograph, they're capturing a time image, aren't they? Which is a kind of an expression of fractions of a second. And so there is some sort of science behind the method. Whereas the pictures from the UAE and especially from the Grand Prix uh, Montserrat, I mean, they, they weren't uh, particularly scientific looking images, were they? No, and further complicated by the fact another photograph emerged later um, not an official photo finish, it has to be said, um, which made it look really quite clearly that Ewan looked to be the first over the line. Yeah, and you know, you know, Lionel, you said that that you know they're they're under pressure to put somebody on the top step of the podium. But I actually think you know a smaller race like this one, if you have two people on top of the podium, it would probably gain more interest from the media than, well, well, maybe not because now that there's this big Ferrari about, you know, who's actually come first, but it, it doesn't happen very often. So that when it does happen, it's actually very unusual. And so it's something that's interesting and something for people to talk about. So personally, I don't see that there is a problem because we do have these very close finishes like at Brabant's Pile. Um, and when, in the case that a finish line photo can actually determine that one rider's wheel was definitely in front of the other, that is fine. Then we, you know, proclaim, proclaim that person as the winner. But when you can't tell, I do think that an equal finish needs to be awarded. And because it's just, you know, it's never the done thing, um, then they just don't do it, even when it should actually be done, because it is possible for it to be a dead heat. Yeah, I think also television is kind of magnifying the spotlight on what is really a a very small event in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it's evolved out of a kind of Belgian Kermesse scene, uh, the Grand Prix Montserrat. And that's not to say it's not important to know who wins. In fact, when television is showing something, I think it's doubly important that the viewer goes away without a question mark about who the actual winner was. But uh, maybe in our heads, we'll call that one a dead heat. Uh, There was another race in Italy, the Trofeo Laguelia, where Nans Peters, led an AG2R 1-2 ahead of his teammate Andrea Vendrami with uh, Alessandro Covey in third 
place. Now, away from racing, I'm very much away from the racing, this one. Uh, the Trek Segafredo rider, Antonio Tiberi, fined €4,000. Quite an extraordinary and quite upsetting story, this. He killed his neighbour's cat with an air rifle. Uh, his neighbour happened to be the San Marino tourism minister, Federico Padini Amati, and Trek Segafredo have suspended Tiberi for 20 days without pay, and that pay will be donated to an animal charity. He'll miss a few races, including, I think, Tirreno Adriatico, which he was due to start, and will return to racing at the Coppi e Bartoli stage race later this month. I mean, we're, I think we're all animal lovers here, aren't we? Um, I mean, quite a quite a baffling one to get my head around this. I remember there was a footballer called Kurt Zuma who um, was very much criticised and, um, you know, he, he faced some uh, legal uh, ramifications for kicking a cat. I mean, this is a whole other level. I mean, actually killing his neighbour's cat, uh, phew, words kind of fail me for once. Yeah, I mean, he's he's expressed regret and I'm sure he does regret his actions. But, you know, you just think that, by the time you get to his stage in life, you should have the judgment to, you know, he, at a lot younger than that, you should have the judgment not to do something like that really young. So inexcusable, really. Sounded like it was pretty shocking for Trek Segafredo as well as they didn't actually know about the incident until pretty much when we knew about it as well. Um, and yeah, very difficult. I was very, I was actually very pleased to see, like you said, Ed, that he was very resentful in his statement that he put out to the media, as he should be. But, um, you know, sometimes younger riders aren't resentful when they perhaps should be. So, yes, I'm happy to see that. But it was really a very, very shocking incident and uh, not quite sure what to think of it, to be honest. Uh, We tried to keep football references to a minimum, but uh, a couple of things. One thing we haven't really talked about is Jim Ratcliffe, who, of course, is the boss of Ineos. Uh, His interest in Manchester United Football Club, one of the biggest football clubs in the world, one of two potential buyers. The other is a Qatari consortium of some kind. Uh, Jim Ratcliffe, of course, already into football because uh, he owns the Nice Football Club, which Dave Brailsford is involved with. Uh, Brailsford kind of still has a kind of umbrella role with the cycling team. uh, But uh, clearly Jim Ratcliffe keen to expand his portfolio of sports sports clubs. I'm not sure whether that means Tom Pidcock's going to be playing as a false nine for Manchester United anytime soon. Um, but another cycling team with uh, football links, the W52 FC Porto team. A listener of ours, Jill Price, wrote to us recently when we were talking about the tour of the Algarve, just to question why Joao Rodriguez is still listed as the 2021 winner, having been banned for a total of seven years for a variety of doping offences, including use of banned methods or possession of substances. This week, Amaro Antunes has become the eighth former W52 FC Porto rider to be banned for doping offence. Uh, there's also an ongoing police investigation which extends to a number of other riders and team management fair to say that there is a doping problem within that team now we're going to move on to talk about strada bianca in the next two parts but just to get it out of the way what are your views on the ag2r team unveiling their denim look shorts a couple of days before the race i mean as an old man ed you probably remember as well the carrera team got their 30 odd years before them carrera of course make jeans and uh, the team Claudio Chiapucci rode for them in the early 90s and they unveiled a kind of denim look jean this is a sort of updated for uh, the 21st century what did you think of them 
Uh, yeah, like you, I remember the Carrera, the classic Carrera kit. At the time, didn't love them. I was going through a not wearing jeans phase, I guess. I don't know. They were, they weren't, denim, denim just wasn't that fashionable back at, at, at that point in my life. But yeah, this one, I, th- I think it's an improvement on the brown shorts. What can I say? And they didn't do much in the race, so it's a good thing that they had a PR stunt to keep them in the news. Indeed. Clement Venturini was 44th, so that's not a ringing endorsement for the, the denim shorts. I mean, I'm, assuring, I'm assuming they weren't denim. I well, mean, yeah, maybe that was, maybe that was what slowed them down, <laughs> Lionel. They, they got a bit wet and a bit sweaty and a bit heavy. <laughs> and big, began chafing the, around the The pockets were just filled mark. with stones, you know. <laughs> Riders coming up and putting another stone in on each climb. <laughs> uh, denim's originally double woven for its durable properties isn't it so maybe in a race like strada bianca that's actually not that well yeah so maybe for the riders that crashed if there were any they were probably you know happy about the extra protection (laughs) i i think a stage race should introduce a denim look leader's jersey and then we'd have the unbelievable sight of ag2r potentially double denim rocking the double denim the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches and now you can wear the super sapiens energy band the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from abbott's LibreSense glucose sport biosensor the super sapiens energy band is available at supersapiens.com for 159 euros thank you very much to super sapiens our title sponsors Super Sapiens is basically the product of a near 20-year journey for Phil Sutherland, the founder. In fact, an 18-year journey because last week, Team Type 1, which is now the Novo Nordisk team, which Phil Sutherland started, celebrated its 18th birthday. Uh, the team is still going strong. They're racing at Nokia Cursa and the Coxider Classic in Belgium next week. And all of the riders on that team are Type 1 diabetics. And so monitoring their glucose levels in real time is absolutely critical for their health but there are also performance benefits for athletes of all kinds and if you go to supersapiens.com or listen to the super sapiens podcast you can find out a lot more about how the technology works now we're going to talk about the racing in tuscany on saturday strada bianca i should have said earlier we're going to catch up with francois thomaso in the final part to talk about paris nice the story so far Jonas vingegaard going up against today pogacar in the race to the sun but we're going to focus on the racing in tuscany now and take the races in the order that they finish so we'll kick off with the women's race which as i said in the news roundup came down to a photo finish between two sd works riders it was demi vollering who got the verdict ahead of her teammate, the defending champion and winner of Omloop Het Newsblad last week, Lotte Kopecki. Uh, the race was really animated by the American rider Kristen Faulkner of the Jayco Alula team, who uh, bridged across the Carline Swinkles of Jumbo Visma with around, what was it, 46 kilometers to go, and then went clear on her own with around 32 kilometers to go. A dangerous rider to allow too much leeway. She won two stages of the Giro last year and the Queen of the Mountains competition, and she was enjoying a gap of around a minute and a half. It was you know, bumped up to almost two minutes at one point with 25 kilometers to go. It was Demi Vollering who really took the initiative, though, on Sector 7, getting away from the group. There was a 
quite a scary moment when a horse got onto the course, an early taste of the Palio perhaps. Uh, the horse eventually ran off the road and uh, did appear to sort of fall down. But we gather from social media that Zlatana, the horse, is now okay, recovering from uh, getting involved in the racing at the weekend. Volering well, was... You, uh, you're sorry to interrupt, but you talked with Daniel a lot last week about, um, or Daniel spoke a lot last week about uh, Bert Blocken's research on drafting motorbikes. And I just wonder if he's done any research on drafting a horse. Do you know what? I haven't got round to that. Um, the, the, the scientific paper hasn't been published yet. Surely there's an aerodynamic benefit. I mean, they were together for a kilometre or so. <laughs> it's downhill. I'm saying, Lizzie, Lizzie, there are all kinds of reasons not to ride too closely behind a horse. And get, getting kicked <laughs> is only one of them. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, yeah, that was uh, by no means the the the, um, the least of the drama for Vollering because, well, she was still uh, chasing uh, Faulkner when she must have had a bit of a shock to to see that she was being joined by her teammate on that gravelly climb. Um, Kopecki got across and the pair worked together there was a brief moment when it looked like Cecily Utrup Ludwig was going to get across she got very close but couldn't quite get on the wheel and then we had this kind of chase of uh, the SD Works riders chasing Faulkner and then behind we had the Movistar pair Annemiek van Vluten and Leanne Lippert chasing as they came into the town of Siena and up the climb, it was obvious that Faulkner was going to get caught, but it didn't come until 600 metres to go. And as Vollering and Kopecki came up to Faulkner, Faulkner really closed the door on Vollering, forcing her into the barriers and then going, made her go the long way round. And then 300 metres to go round one of the corners, Kopecki went into the lead and, well, they hit the line together. Two teammates sprinting side by side. Lizzie, you were talking in the cycling podcast Feminine about team orders and and how uh, teams with a lot of cards to play will uh, decide what happens. I mean, we gather from uh, Anna van der Bregen, who was in the team car for SD Works, that uh, it was basically up to the riders to sort it out. But they, it didn't appear to me they had much of a plan coming into the uh, Piazza del Campo. What did you think? No, I mean, wow. There's, I mean, there's so much stuff to discuss there, isn't there? And... Anna van der Brecken said afterwards that they didn't discuss this because they never imagined that the two of them would be coming to the Piazza del Campo together. Um, and it was the plan for, for Demi Vollering to attack where she did. And it was also the, the plan for, for Lotta to try to attack to where, you know, at the point that she did. But again, I don't think they really perhaps thought that that either both of those attacks would work and, and Lotta Capecchi would be able to join Demi Vollering um, and then go together to the line. And so... I have to say, I 100% thought that they would give the win to Vollering. Um, it was clear at the point when they, they were coming up to the Santa Catarina, they were going to catch Kristen Faulkner. I thought, right, well, Capecchi's going to help her catch. Uh, Vollering will take the win. Capecchi got the win last week at Omloop Het Newsblad. Uh, Vollering does so much work for Capecchi all of the time. And this is, you know, a nice bit of payback. And then it's it's one apiece. And there we go. Because let's be honest, in the rest of the spring classics, Capecchi is probably more likely to have the chance to win more as well. And it feels like Vollering thought that as well. At the top of the Santa Catarina climb, she was the one in the lead and she was just riding through. And then there was a point where Kopecki came round in front of Vollering and then she then seemed to be accelerating and accelerating and then came really hot into the final corner. 
And then at that point, Vollering's kind of like, uh-oh, okay, I, I gotta go for this. And as they cross the line, you could see Kopecky kind of look across and give this like wry smile, almost like, oh, wasn't that fun, sprint for the town sign. And Vollering kind of look across like, what the hell just happened there? And then there was this absolutely intense period just after the finish line where, you know, they both stopped in the same spot, but a couple of metres apart, looking at each other. You can see Vollering mouthing, well, well, who's won? Because they didn't know who had won. They weren't speaking to each other. It later transpired that perhaps as Vollering uh, crossed the finish line, she said a, um, a Dutch swear word <laughs> to Kopecky, um, which she said that if she did say that, it was just in the heat of the moment. Um, but I think that the fact that Vollering won means that going forward, there probably won't be um, any sort of uh, difficulties with the pair in the team. But I think had it have been the other way around, I think it could have been very, very difficult. Some of the things that Vollering said after she crossed the finish line, um, you know, in the winner's interview and also in the in the press conference afterwards, she said that, um, you know, Kopecky came into the tent and I could see that she was visibly happy for me and then, um, you know, it was all okay. And I just get the feeling that perhaps if, if Kopecky had taken that win and Vollering hadn't, I think that it would have been a bit of a problem. And, and I would have understood that really because I think that... Yeah, it's fair to race, but also Kopecky has done a hell of a lot for Vollering and sometimes you just give back, don't you? It was extraordinary, wasn't it? The two teammates crossed the line. The teams clearly won the race, but there wasn't an awful lot of joy on show in those initial minutes after they'd crossed the line. You know, this kind of, uh, you know, the, the PR line that, that the team is what counts. Well, yeah, the team is what counts, but when there's still an individual win on the line, that really counts as well. I mean, uh, there was there was a little bit of brewing tension there. Um, I mean, Ed, what did you think about the the move that Capecchi uh, made, the moment she made it? I mean, hearing Lizzie say there that the, the plan was for Vollering to go at her point and then Capecchi to go later, you know, presumably they were two independent plans rather than, um, you know, rather than, you know, things that would, kind of hold hands join forces because it seemed to me that the risk was if anyone had gone across with Kopecky they'd actually be making their chances of winning the race more difficult rather than um, you know rather than leaving Vollering in pursuit of Faulkner yeah it's a fine margin we'll probably talk about this very concept as well in the men's race later on but yes it's a risk to bridge to a teammate who's ahead because you risk you know you can drag other rides across now the interesting thing is that Faulkner was riding really strongly and really well, and she looked she looked great. Um, she, you know, she she was just tapping out the kilometres, riding at her own pace, and she she looked she looked like she was in really good form. And Volling said at the end they had no doubt they were going to catch her. Like, I, th- I think you know they 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 did have her in sight for a long time, but I think having two two of them there I, I really think they helped. had they had no doubt right at the end that they were going to catch her yeah that, i mean they they had her in sight for a long time but the th- the fact is that having two of them there made it you know that that did make yeah. it very certain i think although i'm sure the plan was volunteering to attack where she did and then maybe if that didn't work then kopecky could go where she went that didn't mean volunteering goes and then kopecky counterattacks but in the end it because of the circumstance of the race and the fact that no one else could bridge Van Vloysen wasn't on a top day, um, we couldn't cross to it. That put the um, favour back with SD Works. And, you know, they're good. that team's good at this race. I'd check back, they've won six out of the nine editions. So they, they know what they're doing. They've always got a very strong, very deep 
um, team. And you know, that, that put them, as soon as they linked up and put distance between themselves and the group behind, um, I think, yeah, it, it looked like they would catch Faulkner. But because there were two of them, if they had just been following, it would have been possibly much tighter. I don't know what you think, Lizzie. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you completely. I mean, if it was just her out there on her own, I almost think that Kapeki had to make that move um, in order to have the strength between them to bring her back. And certainly at, at 40k to go, when it was 40, 30k to go even, I think it was still, um, no, at 20k to go, actually, it was still one minute, 50 seconds. And at that point, I was thinking like, oh, it's really going to be pretty tight here because... Of course, she's not going to be as explosive on on the climbs that were still to come, but she will just keep going at a really high rate for a really long time. And she has that really high, smooth power that will just go on and on forever. Um, You know, Cecilia Ludwig, when she tried to bridge across, she was just painfully close, excruciatingly close, hanging off the back for about you know, about 20 metres behind them for a K or so um, and just couldn't do it there. And then, you know, you had this group behind with Annemiek van Vluten, Lippert, Puck Peters, Nuvidoma, um, Anna Trip Ludwig, and, and, and like, they just, they, just couldn't, they just couldn't make it work to bring them back. And I don't think, you know, as we'll talk about in the men's race later, I don't think it was a fault of tactics from the other team. I think it was purely the fact that the other riders just simply weren't strong enough um, in order to get across. When Kopecky attacked on Latolfe on the final sector she just like flew out of a cannon up up that climb and that climb is absolutely savage it is I can't I cannot describe to you how difficult it is that climb especially when you've already got 110 kilometers of very hard racing on the in the legs and she just made it look so easy and you can see how hard it is because you've got Annemiek van Vluten behind just grinding away trying to get across to her and just couldn't do it so um you know, it was simply the fact that nobody else could match those two riders on the day. I don't think there was any fault of tactics from the other team. And she caught, she caught Vollering very, very quickly as well, Kopecky. And she? went she straight to the front. Well. I mean, what would Vollering have been thinking to be joined by somebody in the same jersey as her? I, I guess there would have been a look round and relief. Re, yeah, relief that Probably, no one thank God. from another team had come. <laughs> I suppose in that sense, it did simplify the next, um, you know, the, the next uh, bit across over that climb and then that they were fully committed to the chase and they there was absolutely no ambiguity about what they were trying to do whereas if they had had a rider from another team they would have been equally committed to closing down Faulkner but they would have been dragging somebody else across so I think it was actually quite critical that nobody else got onto the wheel of Kopecky and uh and, and complicated matters for them um I mean what about Kristen Faulkner's uh ride because clearly a, a very good rider um, a very good climber, uh, which is something you need to be for Strada Bianca because, well, one of the things that I realised for the first time when I went to the race last year was just how severe those climbs are, just how up and down it is all day. The the amount of um, altitude gain over the course of the, the race is significant. I mean, it's not like a, a, a Northern Spring Classic. It's much more like a Giro stage, really. And uh, you've got to be a very good climber to have any chance of pulling off a um, a raid like the one she was attempting, and she gave it a really good go. 
Yeah, I have to say I wasn't at all sure of her form coming into this because, um, as you mentioned in the beginning, Lionel, she had two stage wins at the Giro last year. She had a phenomenal season last year, but after the Giro, between the Giro and the Tour, she picked up COVID and she really struggled in the Tour de France. She wasn't herself for the rest of the year. And the only time that we'd seen her this year was back in the UAE Women's Tour. After that, she went out to Thailand to join her brother for his wedding out there. So it was she was training out there, but it seemed like it was a bit of a holiday. She actually came into this race as a replacement for Alex Manley, who was unwell. So I, I looked at the start list and I thought, you know, out of my own curiosity, I wonder how she's going to be because, you know, I hope she's still not having any effects from COVID last year. And then, you know, she obviously comes along and <laughs> blows all of my doubts out of the water uh, with this astonishing performance. And, um, you know, like you were saying, Lionel, there's so many climbs in this race and they're not the kind of climbs that you can get over easily. You have to put a hell of a lot of work into those climbs. Um, you're in your lowest gear. You're going really hard. You're, you know, riding at a low RPM and they're really, really sapping climbs. So you have to be incredibly strong. So she's really... Um, yeah, she's she's shown her cards for this season, I think, and she's definitely someone we're going to have to be careful of and watch out for in the upcoming races. Well, not us, the rest of the teams. I mean, it's a perfect course, really, because there's this balance between how hard it is to get an organised chase going, uh, even when it's two very committed riders against one tiring rider, and then the final climb up to Siena does swing suddenly everything back in favour of the chasers rather than the rider that's been out there for a long time. So it was a dramatic finish. Uh, what did you think of Faulkner's little move? You know, she wasn't lying down easily, was she? She, defin- she definitely saw Vollering coming and closed the door. Wow. Was it a dirty move or was it just, I I don't know. know. I mean, normally you try and go up between the the ride and the barriers because the wind's coming from one side and and I'm not sure why following. I mean, I guess she was committed to going up the inside, but it it was a narrow Well, no, 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 because Faulkner was on the left. Faulkner was on the left and then she swung over to the right-hand side. And at that point, because Vollering was taking the right, Kapeki was taking the left, Kristen Faulkner was on the left, but she swung to the right as Kapeki came around on the left. But at this same point, Vollering was still trying to go up on the right-hand side. And because she was already there, she put her hand on her ass to say, hey, I'm here, let me through. Kristen Faulkner looked behind, saw that she was there. And, you know, I watched this back a few times and you wonder, is it kind of a wobble when you look back? But it, it wasn't. It was a like elbow out, close the door, put you in the barrier. But... I think it was a bit of a dirty move because, you know, if, if Vollering had got her hand caught in the barrier and she said afterwards she was worried about the uh, the diamond on her engagement ring, whether it was still there because she got her hand caught in the barrier, she could have even brought her down. So I want to change, I want, yeah, I want I to change my statement line. Or two. I'm not yeah, sure about I mean, that one. I was going to say, no real worry about crosswinds there. The buildings are high enough. It's quite enclosed, isn't it? But, um, you know, I definitely think that, uh, well, to give her the benefit of the doubt, she might not not have realized exactly which way Vollering was gonna go I mean yeah 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 I I wonder if that's the case but you know what I wonder if also it was that extra bit of adrenaline that kind of game gave Vollering that extra kick in the final because we know what Kopecki can do on that climb up the Santa Catarina um, up into the square and and so then Vollering was then coming you know from a lot further behind because Kopecki was already slightly ahead of Faulkner at this point <laughs> Vollering kind of had to break come back around him and go all the way around still got to the top of the climb first and still somehow had enough of a sprint to get around Kopecki who we know is a phenomenal sprinter so perhaps that move actually gave Vollering the win. 
are you surprised that they didn't sort out the finish? I mean, in reality, they only really had 600 metres to discuss it, didn't they? I mean, they couldn't have they couldn't have uh, taken for granted, I don't know, 2K out, 3K out, right, what are we going to do when we catch her? I, I suppose they could have had a word. Maybe they did have a word. I don't know. But um, they clearly, they didn't have it sorted between them. I don't think so. From everything that I've read afterwards, from all of the interviews, um, Vollering, as I can understand, thought, as I did, that that she would be kind of given, you know, it's not really fair to say she was given the win after all the work she did in that race, but Vollering would give, be given the win between the two of them. Um, and it was really only at the last moment that she kind of realised, well, no, Kapeki's really going for it here. Um, and so I guess because Vollering thought, you know, I'll get this win, it would have only have been if Kapeki had said, yeah, you, you know, you take it or, or, on the other hand, shall we sprint? That would have been the only way that Vollering would have really thought, yeah, there's something else going on here. And I don't, you know, I don't know whether Kapeki had previously thought, oh, well, Vollering will take it and then got a bit excited on the line. But for Vollering, I can completely understand why she thought she would be gifted the win and then was really taken by surprise and then, you know, only in the final few hundred metres had to try to come round. As an impartial observer whose main interest is the sport being exciting, I'm glad they sprinted, I'm glad it was ambiguous. Um, I always get a sense of anticlimax, and I, I think, you know, maybe some fans agree with me, that when you do get a team that's so strong that they get two riders away contesting contesting the win and then they kind of ride in and we get a situation like you had in Paris-Roubaix a few times with quick step or... Uh, Quick step years years ago, um, or Mapai, kind of basically allocating the order. It leaves it leaves me with a kind of sense that I could have not bothered watching the end of the race. So I'm I, I think that the the sprint made us ensure that we won't see in retrospect this Strada Bianca as a procession by SD Works, but as a kind of a race with a bit of edge that that had a, a final sting in the tail, and I I, I appreciate that, and I I think yeah, SD Works either the strongest or one of the two strongest teams in cycling for yeah over, probably over a decade now, and this is what you get when you have a team of strong riders with alpha personalities in it that they you know they have to sometimes sort it out between themselves. I know they meet at, you know that team meets at the start of the year, and riders are encouraged to say what their goals are for that year, and then. When they commit, you know, the team will commit to that or not, depending on how it all works out. But, you know, it comes with the territory of having a very strong team. And I, I, I think, I'm, you know, I think it added to the interest of the race. Yeah, I mean, uh, at, the, at the risk of this being a sort of margarita pizza of opinion, I think that um, the, the fact that they sprinted all out against each other as if, uh, you know, uh, 300 metres they weren't teammates, I think was uh, a great credit to them and it made the race better and more interesting. If they'd if they just cruised down into the square and one had just backed off and let the other go over the line, we'd all be saying, oh no, they should have gone head to head to sort it out and just um, when we'd see who the strongest is. I think that, uh, you know, I, I mean... I'm sure that, as you say, Lizzie, you know, there are um, bigger objectives coming and this inter-team rivalry will be interesting to watch because it's, well, it, it adds an extra dimension. They're, they're both very strong. They're both um, clearly incredibly ambitious and they're kind of stuck in the same team, which in a lot of ways is very helpful to both of them, but on occasion will lead to some kind of conflict, which is 
kind of what we want to see, isn't it? That's what the sport is about. Um, just lastly, what what did you make of the 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 sort of fight put up by some of the other teams? I mean, Movistar, you know, had two riders sort of stuck in that group, um, but but no one really had the horsepower other other than the horse uh, to disrupt uh, Demi Vollering and uh, Lotta Kopecky. Especially with Cavalli out of action at the moment. Um, well, yes, um, I, I do. I do wonder if Movistar perhaps should have put their cards on Lippert instead of Annemiek van Vluten and they should have had Annemiek van Vluten working for Liana Lippert um, because I think they were kind of a bit undecided and a lot on a lot of the sectors it looked like Lippert had the edge and van Vluten's um, kind of lost, you know, she's never been the most explosive rider but she does still have some explosivity and she just doesn't seem to have quite that edge this season. Either that or everybody else has more which I think actually might be more of the case. Um, so I think perhaps they could have put their cards on Lippert. Um, Puck Peters was absolutely incredible. This was, you know, a second road race or something ridiculous like that. And she was just phenomenal. She was the one trying to pull back the breakaway, trying to pull back Kristen Faulkner when there was disorganisation behind and, um, you know, refusal to work by a lot of the teams. And, you know, perhaps she shouldn't have been doing it, but she just absolutely showed her strength. And it's going to be really incredibly exciting to see what she can do in more of these kind of tough attritional road races in the future, um, especially if, you know, she can get her teammate Yara Castellan up there as well. Um, those two are really exciting riders. And it's just, you know, to, to see her, appetite for the race because she's so fresh for it and she's so excited by it all she really really wants it and that's really cool to see um yeah Nivea Doma another disappointing race at Strada I guess for her she she would have wanted to be on that podium and she's been she's been on the podium so many times and never been able to take the win and I think it was seventh in the end for her um but but I think overall like I said before I just think it was the fact that SD works were stronger just lastly, before we move on, a couple of listeners have asked us, a few listeners have actually asked us, they spotted on Kristen Faulkner's upper arm, on her left arm, what might have been a continuous glucose monitoring sensor. We don't know whether it is. I have asked the team, uh, no comment from them. I have asked the UCI as well, and uh, we will report back when we get an answer from the UCI. Uh, this technology is not permitted in racing. The, the irony is that the SD Works team work with Super Sapiens. They use this technology in training, uh, but you're not allowed to use it in the race. I mean, I must uh, just sort of stress, we don't know that that is what it is, but it's the, it's the question that a few people have asked us and we will endeavour to find out. As we were editing this week's episode, the UCI responded to my question and said, the UCI has been made aware that Kristen Faulkner appears to have been wearing a continuous blood glucose monitor during Strada Bianca. The UCI is currently examining the case and considering applicable procedures and potential consequences. The UCI issues a reminder that under Article 1.3.006 bis of the UCI regulations, devices which capture other physiological data, including any metabolic values such as but not limited to glucose or lactate, are not authorised in competition. This is no doubt an issue we will return to in future weeks. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. 
With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Men's race then, won by Tom Pidcock of Ineos. Just his fourth pro race win. I mean, not a bad list though, is it? He beat Wout van Aert to Brabantse Pale in 2021. He won the Alpe d'Huez stage of the Tour de France. And just last month, he won a stage in Algarve. And he won it on a descent, really, didn't he? Let's uh, go back to the earlier stages. There was a breakaway of Sven-Erik Bistrom of Antemarche, Alessandro de Marchi, and Ivan Romeo, who was the youngest rider in the race, the three of them were away, never really had much of a lead. Uh, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo, was uh, dropped from the front group with 52 <laughs> kilometres to go. I can see you both shaking your head oh, there. Dear. Sorry. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, it's uh, Siena, but- not, uh, not Verona. Oh, I knew there was something. Um, Before that, actually, Valentin Madouas, uh, more of him in a bit, was involved in a crash with about 70 kilometres to go. And, well, Pidcock attacked off the back of a move by uh, Betiol and Bagioli. And the three of them got together. And while well, the other two had no real answer when Pidcock put on the pressure on a gravelly descent with around 49 kilometres to go, he closed in on Bistrom and DeMarkey. It took him less than 10 kilometres to catch them. And then he went on his own. And it was remarkable, really, because I don't think his lead was anything more than a minute or so at any point. At one point, it was down to single digit seconds. And yet... And yet he stayed away. It was an astonishing uh, performance by Pidcock, but perhaps uh, owed as much to the hesitation and the confusion and the conflict in the chase group. Jumbo Visma had two riders in there, Tish Banut and Attila Valta. Mohoric was in there, Quinn Simmons was in there, Madouas was in there, Rui Costa as well, but they never got themselves organised. A little bit like I was saying before, how difficult those roads are to chase on. They left themselves too much to do and Pidcock pulled it off. An impressive victory, uh, but a really kind of gripping finale to the race because at one point it really looked like it should all have been over especially with Jumbo Visma having the two riders in there and we'll talk a little bit about the conflict between Banut and Valter because there was one moment where Banut was up the road and he looked behind saw Valter coming across must have assumed that Valter was dragging riders across with him and he did give a bit of a theatrical wave of the hand Banut not happy with his teammate uh, but the day belonged to Tom Pidcock uh, yeah, yeah, you, you've, you've, you've summed it up. Um, thoroughly deserved win. The, there's no doubt in my mind that Tom Pidcock was the strongest in the race. Um, yet, I think he should not have won that one. But the composition, politics and behaviour of the second group was what complicated things so much. So it was, it was to me, it was, it was kind of close to being a, a you know, the, the perfect bike race where you get the kind of the strongest rider against cleverer riders. But then it all went um went wrong again for that second group and they you know closed to within 
I think six or seven seconds of Pidcock with a substantial distance still to go and didn't catch him and he, he rode to a thoroughly deserved victory. Well, yeah, it was it was just crazy, wasn't it? I mean, let's be honest, it was a big old screw up of tactics by Jumbo Visma and I don't quite know... I don't quite know what happened there because, you know, you had this trio away, um, this trio away of um, Madwas, Tijbrenut and Costa, and they were doing a really good good job working together, uh, bringing down the gap to uh, Tom Pidcock. They had it down to six seconds of going over the top of Monte Aperti, and that was when Benut looked behind and he saw what looked like Attila Valta bringing the other guys up and that really screwed the chase up because then instead of you've got you know instead of the fact that you've got three riders who are you know it's a small group you can see the rider in front you're working together um, you've all got a vested interest to get this rider and then once you've got that rider then you can fight it out between you then you've got six guys I think it was six guys um, and you've got two from one team. So everybody else is looking at the two from that team, but then the two from the one team aren't actually working together because they can't decide who should be the leader. And I don't know, there's obviously nothing from the team car. And this could be a case of the fact that the team car just wasn't even in range, you know, in the in the distance. And perhaps that's something that um, the listeners um, don't fully appreciate that the, the directions from the team car can't always get through. So, you know, when there's riders spread all over the road, it's got to be at least a minute between groups before the team car can get in between that. And so if you've got a group and then 45 seconds, another 45 seconds, another 45 seconds, the team car is going to be such a way behind that that message isn't actually going to get to the riders because the signal on the riders' radios is not that good. So, um, I mean, these two riders shouldn't need direction from the team car to be able to decide between them which one is going to ride and which one is going to be the protected leader um so yeah i don't know i don't know what the orders from the car were i don't know whether the orders from the car were getting through and that could have been a similar problem in the women's race actually um but really jumbo visma screwed this up big time and the reason the reason that pidcock didn't come back was due to due to the fact that Attila Valta may or may not have pulled those other riders back and due to the fact that they just had this terrible teamwork. You, know, it was, you can't even call it teamwork, just terrible lack of cohesion between those two riders, Valter and Benut. I've got a slight bit of sympathy for Jumbo Visitor, just a bit, just a bit, um, because I, I rewatched the race this morning and yes, Benut, um, Maduas and Costa were away and looking like a good move. Um, closing the gap to Pidcock, who'd been out, out there for a long time. Um, Valter did close the gap, but the thing is, most of the work to close that gap before Benutz or Valter was done by Quinn Simmons. Quinn Simmons actually took, stretched out that group and took Valter and maybe Mohoric quite close. And it was only when Quinn Simmons kind of popped that Valter came through. And by that point, he was so close to the lead group, it, he probably thought, well, Mohoric is struggling. Quinn Simmons has blown the rest are way back. Maybe I've got a chance to get across and there'll be four of us. But, didn't, quite, didn't quite work. But Ed, as soon as he looked behind him, which he did do, and he saw that riders were coming, he should have stopped immediately. Immediately he should have stopped and he should have waited on the wheel of that those, those riders. And the signal between the group of Benut and the group of Attila would have been good enough for Benut to radio back to Attila Valter to say, this group's working really well together, we're bringing the gap down, um, make sure you disrupt behind or whatever. Or, you know, you don't even need to say that last bit, that should be clear. In which case, 
all Valta has to do is sit on the wheel, sit on second wheel up that climb. And if somebody goes, follow them, stick to them like glue, he clearly, you know, he clearly was strong enough to do that and just disrupt that chase every single bit you can. And if that chase brings back the group ahead, then he can, you know, then he can counterattack or whatever. But he just just completely screwed it up <laughs> i can see the direction this is going and we're 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 calling him attila the wrong here aren't we uh, unfortunately but i mean what a long time a week in cycling is because this time last week we were absolutely hailing jumbo visma to the heavens for their brilliance in both races at opening weekend with multiple riders they had every single tactical nuance completely nailed they they set up um uh, vambala uh, perfectly on the Saturday and then I thought even cleverer on the Sunday when you know Benut took uh, took advantage of really his only available play I think it was a lot more complicated for Benut here yes he was in that little group of three but we all know Benut is not the fastest finisher so his his only chance of actually winning the race I think would have been somehow to have got himself into the lead on his own and that was going to be a very very tall order Benut is undoubtedly the senior figure of those two Valter is new on the team uh, Benut is uh, well he's becoming an elder statesman of uh, the classics campaigns now uh, but I don't think it's all on Attila Valter because he was clearly strong and he was more explosive and I, I wonder whether actually Benut should have thought hmm let's uh, let's let's try it the other way around no i agree um, i agree and so then 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 you know some of that onus is on benute to give the order you know valter is the one that's new in the team so benute has to tell him what to do and if he's not doing what he wants him to do even at the point when you know those those riders did come back to the group and it was a larger group of six or seven or whatever, then chasing Tom Pidcock down. They still had a chance. They still had a chance to get him because that actually, you um, you come over that climb, there's another rise, you come down, there's a big sweeping sort of U-turn and there's another climb up and it's like, it goes up to where they go around a little roundabout and it's actually pretty hard. It's just before they go back down again and across the river where we saw Tom Pidcock going so fast that he almost like hit the race director's car. Um, but that climb up before that is really quite deceiving on on the tv it looks easy it looks quite flat but when you're riding it it is hard and it takes quite a long time and at that point there was so much disorganization I think there was an attack from Mata Maharic and it was just sort of like yo-yo I actually call it almost call it like a slinky effect um, and because of that that speed was just going in and out and in and out and in and out of the group and they did have the chance to bring him back if I think one of them had committed and they'd said right okay and Benut had said He'd said, okay, I'm going to work for you now because you're clearly the most explosive. But because they still didn't do that, I just think, yeah, whichever, whichever one of them it was, you know, it, it, the onus was on both of them. They both have to work together. Benut has to give orders. Valter has to give orders, whatever. They both have to listen to each other. But clearly there wasn't communication going on. Communication is the key here. And that ability to communicate when you're really, really deep in the red, that is the difference between winning and losing, in a, losing a race. Wasn't the complication, Ed, that catching Pidcock was only one part of the equation? They weren't just trying to catch Pidcock, although they had to do that in order to uh, have a chance of winning the race. Uh, they needed the right kind of combination. Um, they didn't want to all go to the finish with five or six. They they wanted to whittle it down at some point. And so that 
that com- that kind of conflict you know Mohoric we saw doing a uh, you know a, a few things to try and and shake things up maybe split it down um you know th- that was what was basically confusing everybody's mind there was no one had uh, you know the, the perfect answer yeah it got that's where it got very very complicated so Jumbo Visma's success to an extent last year and so far this year has been down to their their strength in numbers uh, their strength in depth and they've kind of perfected this this way of attacking with more than one rider they'll attack in in it's kind of a pod like a pod formation that you have in rugby and apologies to readers i know they don't like football as sorry listeners i know they don't like football references but this is a rugby tactic um a pod attack is when you have a ball carrier and then two support players and they work as a as a unit effectively and that's what Yumo Visma have been doing they've been attacking in groups of three they did it Paris Nice last year uh, Tour de France last year they did it in Kuna I think uh, this 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 season and I think their strategy is one of strength in numbers and I think they probably wanted to engineer a similar situation on Saturday at Stride Bianca the problem was um, first things were so complicated and all over the place that they weren't. They couldn't be organised. There were so few riders left at the sharp end of the race. Even after after Pidcock attacked, once they got to the end of that very long section, that there were no teams with numbers, you know, Jumbo Bismarck or otherwise. Second complication is that apart that from sec- Ineos, actually, Ineos uh, had three. But yeah, to be fair, yeah. actually, but well, Ineos aren't going to chain, uh, aren't going to chase <laughs> Pidcock, I guess. No, um, no. And, yeah. and and Bahrain had some numbers, but they didn't didn't have the strength. So, um, but the thing is that that second group was terrible in terms of the way it was working together they had they had the firepower to catch Pidcock it was clear because they closed the gap to a handful of seconds and started sitting up and freewheeling and doing that thing where they look at each other and you know again Jumbo Visma's strategy here I think did bite them in the backside because everyone would look to them to do the work because they're the strong team they're the team in numbers and maybe neither Benut nor Valter really you know they would have had to commit one of those riders probably Valter to riding on the front of that group. There was no reason for anyone else to do any work. The The cohesion of that group depended on them all finding common ground to catch Pidcock, and they just didn't have enough. It, I found it really kind of half appalling and half entertaining to, to watch because I, I just f- thought Pidcock, you know, they had the strongest rider in the race who had potentially blown his tips too early. They had him within sight and they could have beaten him and they didn't. Well, perhaps it's, uh, we were talking about conspiracy theories on uh, Cycling Podcast Feminine, and perhaps it's a conspiracy theory that Jumbo Visma were just trying to make the race very exciting. But Lionel, just indulge me in a little bit of speculation. Hypothesize this. So you've got Madwas, Tijbanut and Costa in their little three. They're working together. Valter doesn't attack and bridge over. Uh, these three, they catch Pidcock. Um, and then, so whatever, Pidcock's caught. There's four of them. They're still working together quite well. But at this point, Tijbanut can do a little bit less because he says, okay, hey, I've got Valter behind. What do I have to do? Then eventually the other group catch them and then v- Valter attacks and then goes solo to the line and Jumbo Visma win. You should have been in the team car, Lizzie. I do think, though, that the, the, the nature of the roads does not lend itself to a cohesive chase anyway. You know, there's the gravel climbs, then there's, the, you know, lots of twisty turny. We saw it in the women's race as well. You know, they were teammates and they were working out the chase pretty evenly but there's the potential to get stuck on the front for the wrong bit you know going into the red a little bit too much there's a lot of 
um, there's a lot of opportunities for riders to just think, no, nah, I don't want to be on the front chasing at this point. I'm going to swing off a bit early, leave somebody else on the front. The cohesion goes out of everything. And so naturally, uh, the thoughts in all of their minds is that they need to get across in, in smaller numbers, you know, two or, or three maybe. And I think that, yes, yeah, certainly that is where it broke down between them. You know, I'm not saying that Valter is blameless. I mean, you, you don't ride across to... Um, a teammate who's up the road with uh, competitors on your wheel. I mean, that is kind of page one of the tactical handbook. Um, but like I say, you know, in the heat of the battle, uh, you know, mistakes are forgivable. Um, but I just don't know whether having Benut up front, you know, okay, let's think about those three catching Pidcock and then the four of them go to the finish together. I think arguably Pidcock still wins. I mean, Madawas perhaps. Um but arguably Pidcock, you know, he had the race um, to win. You know, it, it was his anyway, maybe. I don't know. I think the moment to beat Pidcock was when they were closing on him with about maybe eight kilometres to go up a, up a drag. They had him in virtually in his, they were virtually in his slipstream and they that was the point to catch him. He'd been out the whole race and then Jumbo Visma did then have strength in numbers. That would have played to her advantage. But I think the moment Pidcock won the race or was allowed to win the race was when they sat up there and let him go away again. And, you know, that's that's not to say that he didn't, you know, that it wasn't his fault that he won or he won by accident or by luck because um, he put himself in that position to, to do so. But he, he was, I, I think that group had him there for the taking, but they didn't. It's amazing, really, isn't it? Because he was in such an incredible position for so long. You know, going away with 50k to go, um, obviously every single descent, every single corner, he was making time up on the peloton and he wasn't really losing any on the climbs. And he was in a great position where he had Magnus Sheffield and Ben Tullet behind. Um, and it just looked like this was going to play, play out perfectly. If anything happened, if they got caught, you know, Sheffield would go away or, you know, Tullet would go away and then Sheffield would be there for the win or something like that. It was it was just textbook for them. And then uh, Alberto Betiol had that horrendous crash where just after a hairpin bend, he came out around and smashed his head on the floor. And Magnus Sheffield also came down, broke his bike, was waiting a really long time for a team car. And then at that point, that, that group split up a lot. Um, and then later, Ben Tullet couldn't quite make it when, uh, you know, he was marking moves and he couldn't quite make it across when, um, when some of the others went. So it went in the space of about five kilometres from being absolutely the perfect situation from Ineos, like there's no way they can't win, to thinking, oh, you know, really what's going to happen here? And so that last... 30 kilometers of the race was phenomenally exciting so thank you Jumbo Visma and Alberto Betiol and Sheffield and all of those people for making it so exciting but um frustrating but I think that's what makes an exciting race sometimes and I think between Pogacar and Pitcock I mean they're rewriting the the script for how you win Strada Bianca because that's two years in a row that the break has gone or the winner has gone from uh, 50 kilometers there were thereabouts to go. I know Pogacar was a was a, a solo move, whereas Pidcock, you know, had uh, well, he bridged up. He had company, drop company, and had had people um, in in front of him at one point. So, um, I mean, impressive. And we've got to also say, you know, the descent was what won it for him. I mean, he rode away from Betiol and Bagioli. I don't think that they were going to go to the finish with him on the form that they were on anyway um, but it just showed that you know bike handling is such a key uh, skill 
in a race like Strade Bianche and that we can have brilliant racing despite the disappointment of Pogacar and Van Aert not on the start line. What did we think of some of the other um, teams and riders? I mean, Matthew van der Poel was making his debut for the season for Alpecin de Koenig and, you know, well, there was a, there was a, period of the race where he just didn't quite look himself i think he had a puncture or a crash early in the race i think that was i can't remember which one it was but there was definitely something that happened before um the live pictures came across um and so i think that he had a very long chase back then so that could have been part of the reason or maybe he's just not quite back to himself after a little break after um, maybe some extra celebrations after winning the Cyclocross World Championships. We should have got over that by now. It's been uh, quite a few weeks. <laughs> maybe there were very big celebrations. <laughs> a few week hangover, Lionel. Haven't you had one of those? <laughs> but I mean, I assume I would assume he would have taken some time off the bike as well. Um, I don't know. Perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe you know otherwise. Well, what does it tell us about the the, the next big classic, Milan San Remo? I mean, Matteo Mohoric is in good shape. Um, you know, can he can he double up? I don't know. I mean, not not easy to spot signs from uh, a, a race like Strada Bianca and compare it to Milan San Remo because, not least, there's two stage races to go in between. But definitely, Jumbo Visma's uh, kind of, you know classics impenetrability is uh well it's you know it lasted seven days really didn't it Ed? uh yeah it did last it was i'm sure they will be back they have they have options for the future dylan van van baal obviously wasn't in um italy and wow van art will start racing seriously you know, i'm sure he's racing seriously already but he'll come into form and and start doing what wow van art does soon so i wouldn't be too worried i, I see this as more of an aberration they still you know had two riders in the in the top five they won't be at all happy with the fact that they were I think third and fifth but you know they're, they're still fine no, I was particularly impressed with Valentin Madouas who's getting getting closer and closer to a big win and it's not he's not quite at the point where he can do the kind of thing where that Pogacar and Pidcock or or the Jumbo Visma riders are doing but he's just consistently achieving high places in grippy one day races he was I think third in Tour of Flanders last year, now second in Strade Bianchi. So he's, I think he's clever and he's pretty strong and that combination of assets will see him win something. And the other person who just impressed me with those was Tom Pidcock, just because his descending, especially he's in such, he has such mastery and control of his bike. And even when he had to slight wobble on a corner, he did that cyclocross thing of just going, going with the skid and, it doesn't with, phase him, does it? No, it doesn't. He he knows exactly what his bike does and how it does it and why it does it. And I think he's, it's not innate. I think it's built up through years and years of just doing this and experience. But he he knows exactly what his limit is. And he goes, he doesn't go up to it. He goes, well, he goes up to it, but nowhere near beyond it. And because of that, he, he's dropping people on, in places where, you know, maybe other people can't, can't drop them. It makes him a real, you know, it makes him really threatening and when you look at the riders who've won this race especially in the last five or six years what you could say the unifying theme is about them is like when each winner has been the best cyclist in the world when they've when they've won it you look at Alaphilippe, Wout van Aert, Pogacar and Van der Poel each were absolutely dominant and having really great years when they won it and I imagine that's going to bode well for Thomas Pidcock yeah, it's going to be a really exciting year for him. He takes things in his stride. He, you know, he just sort of, you know, the, the 
the response last weekend from uh, Omni Pet Newsblad when he came fifth and he said, oh, yeah, well, there's nothing to write home about, though, was it? <laughs> you know, didn't didn't have a great weekend. And someone's like, well, you know, you were, you were still fifth, yeah, but I didn't do anything in the race. Um, and it's really exciting. Another rider who I'm a little bit sad that we didn't get to see much of this weekend, Magnus Sheffield, um, because of being taken out by that crash. Um, I think he's another rider who's going to be really exciting to watch and see what he can do. Um, you know, he was obviously on really good form. He was looking so strong. He was always there right at the front. Um, he was there right at the front when Pidcock attacked and fighting to get into that Monte, Monte Sante Maria section where Pidcock and Betiel went. You know, that is that is actually almost as hard as anything else in the race you know those fights to get into those sectors are incredibly difficult really really hard to get to the front hold your position hold that power and then stay there so um really impressive ride from the youngsters in in Ineos what's it called Ineos. <laughs> Grenadiers. Ineos Grenadiers. Yeah, youngsters in the Ineos Grenadiers team. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to see what else Sheffield will do. And it's it's amazing that we've spent, you know, 20 minutes talking about Strada Bianchi and actually not dwelled that much on, on Pidcock's performance and how exceptional it was. But it almost kind of goes without saying, doesn't it? It was just... He said in his post-race interviews, he didn't even mean to attack there. He was just going downhill and the others couldn't follow. So... Well, off the front, let's go for it. I was, I was going to say, I'm going to make a daring art historical tangent here, but there's a there's a famous altarpiece in the um, Duomo in Siena, painted by an artist called uh, Duccio. And one of the panels on this very famous art, uh, art, artwork is called The Incredulity of Thomas. It's obviously a bib- biblical reference, but I don't think, I think the person who's least surprised at Thomas Pidcock's victory was Thomas Pidcock himself. I think the other thing is his versatility in the classics is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, remember his debut at Milan San Remo a couple of years ago when he, even by Rod Ellingworth's assessment, just got a little bit overexcited uh, coming off the Poggio. Uh, he could he could win that. He could win the Tour of Flanders. Uh, you know, Amstel Gold, Flesh Wallone, Liège, Baston-Liège. I mean, he's got the whole lot on his race calendar and this is probably not the last we've seen of him this spring. Just to wrap up, Sudal Quicksteps, classic woes continue. You mentioned Alaphilippe as a past winner of Strada Bianca, um, Ed. I thought maybe he was returning to some form. He won the Four Nardesh Classic. Uh, when was that? That was last weekend, wasn't it? Um, but I think that just shows the gap in uh, in sort of quality required to you know between a, a race like the Fonardash which is not you know not a, a, a picnic um, but Strada Bianca is another level and really Sudal Quickstep well Bagioli's little move um, kind of summed up their entire day really they were kind of there briefly and then suddenly they weren't yeah so Bagioli I think finished 30th in the end and he was Sudal Quickstep's highest finisher which is well below what you expect of them um, Alaphilippe yeah he hasn't looked that sharp yet I mean I know he won the Ardash Classic but you know he had to outspin David Gordou uh, to to win that I mean they, they were far and away the best riders in that race they they dropped everyone no problem but yeah I think Strada Bianca is a different um, different level of, of race so work to do there I think on that note, uh, I will say thank you very much to uh, you, Ed, and to you, Lizzie. I'm going to catch up with Francois Thomasot, who is somewhere between Paris and Nice, just to see what is going on in the race to the sun. Doesn't look like an awful lot of sunshine just yet. Maybe have to wait till about Thursday or Friday for the first glimpse of warmth. But uh, 
thank you very much for both of you thank you thank you both the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. I'll certainly be packing some Science in Sport goodies with me when I go to Milan San Remo next week. Some beta fuel for my bidons and some beta fuel chews just to give me an extra burst of energy for the Cipressa and the Poggio when I need it. Now, if you would like to take part in the Science in Sport challenge that they've got on Strava coming up at the end of this month, sign up for the Science in Sport Global Cycle Club on Strava. Full details of the challenge will be announced on March the 11th and the challenge itself runs from March the 18th to the 31st. I can't give any more details at the moment, uh, but they will be revealed on Strava on the 11th. So sign up for the Science in Sport Global Cycle Club. I'll be taking part in the challenge and everyone who completes the challenge will get a discount at scienceinsport.com. And one lucky winner will also get a very special prize. More details about that on Strava and I'll announce the details in next week's episode. Now, before we catch up with Francois Thomasot at Paris-Nice, the cycling podcast jersey, beautifully designed and produced by MAP, is back in stock. The jersey came out last year. It went out of stock briefly towards the end of last year, but it's back in stock for both men and women. And with the spring approaching and uh, warmer weather, you might be looking to refresh your wardrobe. So check out map.cc for the cycling podcast range. There's also bib shorts and a range of accessories cycling podcast casquette socks and bidon all at map.cc and of course the other ranges of map clothing are on the website too now maps initiative for march is the pursuit of progression and they want to know what your goals are for the year ahead what are you striving to achieve what do you aspire to do on the bike this year and they would like you to share your stories at map.cc and there's a chance to win a year's supply of kit if you choose to do so. I'd also like to hear what your goals are for 2023. Perhaps we will include them in a future episode of Explore or just read them out in a future episode of the podcast. What ride do you really want to do in 2023 and why? Email me contact at thecyclingpodcast.com and let me know what ride you want to do this year. Now let's catch up with Francois Tomaso, who says he's covering his final edition at Paris-Nice. I spoke to him on the phone shortly after the finish of stage two. Yeah, uh, Jonas said in the, in the middle of the race if, if we go after the bonus sprint, but yeah, then we got the gap. Yeah, we just two guys working. It was not enough and uh, headwind also, so then it was obvious it's going to be sprint, so I stood up, waited in a bunch and safely through the finish line. Well, that was Tadej Pogacar talking about that brief moment in time where he and Jonas Vingegaard were off the front on the opening stage of Paris-Nice on Sunday. The stage was eventually won by Tim Malia of Sudal Quickstep and today's stage to Fontainebleau was won by Mads Pedersen who's taken over the yellow jersey and Francois I can see you're in a very glamorous location there whereabouts are you? I'm in uh, Ibis Styles in Gien well not far from Gien uh, you might remember Gien because there was a time trial in Paris-Nice uh, a few years ago I very yeah vivid memory of Gien actually because the, the time trial was won by Stefan Bissager well now with edu- well he was already with the education 
whatever uh, EF. I don't know what they what we, what they were called at the time. Yeah, and I I spent a little bit of time with Richard uh, that day. He was he had come on uh, on Paris Nice, and uh, we had, I remember we had a few beers uh, in a little bar on the terrace just outside the press uh, area. So yeah, it's uh, yeah quite a vivid memory of uh, Richard I have and of Jean in, uh, in the same time. So yeah, that's where I am. And the opening stages so far have been well the early days of Paris Nice in a nutshell, haven't they? Freezing cold and kind of still shuttered up from winter yeah they, they, yeah it was very predictable i mean we knew the weather was going to be uh, bad i mean it's, it's often is on on Paris. so far so good but we're going up the mountain pretty early in this Paris uh on uh, day four we're going to a new place i mean uh, la loge des gardes it's um, kind of an unheralded um, climb but I've looked at the weather forecast and they say minus six well maybe probably not on the day of the race but in the morning so yeah and and La Cuyol the last big climb I mean the the Queen stage uh, uh, you know overlooking Nice yeah, the, the, yeah, the forecast has also minus uh, something. So yeah, we have to to gear up for that. Uh, but yeah, but we're better off than the riders anyway. Cold weather, but the racing already showing signs that this showdown between Pogacar and Vingegaard is going to come to something later on in the week. I mean, they had a little test of the water on Sunday, didn't they? What did you make of that? There was a story in the equipe this morning. I, I thought it was a little bit far-fetched. Uh, they said that, you know, uh, Pogacar would attack every day to, you know, grab a few seconds here and there, like scavenge a little bit of time, uh, but, you know, ahead of the team time trial, you know, and everybody says that it might be a big, one of the big weaknesses of the UAA Emirates team. They've never, I think they've only done one at World Tour level. And apparently, uh, today. Pogacar himself only rode two time trials, one as an amateur and one in as a pro. So it's it's unknown territory for them. Yeah, the the the, the overactivity of Pogacar in the first two stages. I mean, he won both intermediate intermediate sprints in both stages. Uh, is it a show of strength or a show of nerves and or or jitters? I mean, we will we'll know. But I mean, he looked very relaxed to me. He looked very fit, very in great shape. And but as you said, Jonas Vingegaard was never far. You know, uh, he, he he didn't feature very much in the sprint. I mean, today for instance, he was not in the mix in the sprint. He, he sent Nathan van Hooydonk uh, to do the sprint for Jumbo Visma. And try to you know take points off uh, Pogacar, but it wasn't there today. So, yeah, uh, are Jumbo Visma overconfident because they've got a great team for the team time for all? Uh, is Pogacar underconfident about the team time for all? Uh, as you know as well that uh, this this team time for all is is run under new well not new rules but different rules like the the times uh, are taken on the first well actually to make it simple each guy you know uh, time is timed uh, with the time he, he, he actually did on the, on the bike whereas in the past they were taking the team's time on the fourth fastest uh, rider so it, it was forcing the the teams to stay together we'll have an impact on the tactics um, in a team time where we'll see we, we don't know so far the, the general feeling here is that it, it won't change much actually because you go faster if you, there's two or three or four of, of, of you, then just being on your own for the last K, even for the last K. So the idea that, you know, the team might be used as kind of a launching pad for the leader to ride on his own for the last K or the last two Ks seems 
pretty relevant, but I, I don't know. We'll see. And has it given the race an extra frisson of excitement that we've got the the two riders who between them have won the last three editions of the Tour de France? And obviously, this is the first big showdown on the road to uh, Bilbao and the Tour de France in July. To be honest, uh, with, with Bernal, he would have you know he had to pull out, as you know. But but I mean, Ineos Grenadiers still have a very you know very. Yeah, impressive team with Dani Martinez and Pavel Sivakov. And yeah, I, I think I, I've rarely, I mean, you know, the, the, the it always moves and shifts a little bit uh, for the past like 15, year, 15 years, I should think, maybe. Uh, Tireno Adriatico to, took a little bit of the limelight uh, away from Paris and the, the you know, the, the bigger stars and the, the better GC riders would often go to Tirreno instead of uh, Paris. With Bernal, it would have been an unbelievable uh, field at the start of the of, of this Paris. And I must admit, I, I rarely, I've been doing Paris uh, almost non-stop for the last 25 years, I think. And uh, it's probably the, one of the most impressive uh, start lists I've seen, uh, you know, in the race for a long time. So, yeah, uh, uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be, it's very early in the season to know, you know, that to judge, uh, to you know, to, to know what's going to happen during the tour. But uh, as Pogacar always says, and he, he made it clear again, he's, he's cycling for fun. And he's already at he's already had fun in the first two stages by attacking like he did in the sprints. Vingegaard uh, also likes to you know to be in this kind of, this kind of games, and um, yeah, the, the 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 very short brief moments of excitement when the two were involved in uh, attacks or sprints or moves, especially in the first uh, stage. Yeah, uh, it's very promising for the rest of the season and for the rest of these Pyrenees. Well, as you say, there's the two uphill finishes. There's the traditional finale with the Colders on Sunday. When do you expect to see the sun, though? That's the most important question. The, the thing is, uh, the, the sun will be there uh, at the start of the Queen stage to La Cuyol at the, you know, in Nice. Uh, I, I was chatting with a with a friend, uh, you know, who will be staying, you know, lots of the of of the press and uh, the journalists won't be able to 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 go up to La Cuyol. I'm lucky I'll be there. I've even been sleeping at the the mountain pass itself. You know, I mean, almost on the finish line in a little chalet that looks very promising, especially food-wise. But anyway, apparently it'll be very sunny at, at the foot of the, 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 the mountain uh, in Nice, like 25 degrees, and it'll be like minus six uh, up there. So yeah, some guys are going to see the sun, but not me, or not, at least until Sunday, I'm afraid. And lastly, Francois, I mean, does it really matter? You know, Pogacar and Vingegaard have both got bigger fish to fry later in the year but does getting one over on your biggest rival matter at this stage of the season or you know will the will the loser assuming one of them wins and 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 well the other one doesn't will will the winner take much from it and the loser feel they've got more work to do or is it just too early to start drawing those conclusions no, I think it's too early. And in terms of the Tour de France, it's, it's a bit irrelevant. Uh, as we as we always say, a lot can happen. You know, they can get sick, uh, crash or whatever. So, yeah, it's... Uh, but I, I think Paris has an interest in itself. Because if you look at the Pogacar, both riders are riding Paris for the first time, uh, which is uh, rather amazing. And uh, lots of riders who are on Paris this year have, have, have an 
done Paranis before. So once again, there's been a kind of a shift, uh, you know, in the polarities be- between Tirreno and, and Paranis. My impression is that uh, Pogacar came to Paranis simply to win it because he already won Tirreno. So, you know, it's, it'll be another line in his uh, palmarès. And my impression is that uh, uh, Pogacar probably... Uh, is already writing his own legend in a way, and uh, and, uh, and the, the, the only explanation why he changed his schedule to come to Paris is probably because he's already won Tirreno and would like to add a line to his to his record. As for as for Vingegaard, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, uh, I suppose he didn't want to do Strade Bianche or races like that, and so of course he could have done Tirreno without doing Strade Bianche. But but the groups. The, the, the group that, you know, Jumbo picked for uh, Tirreno, some of them were Strade Bianche. I also think Jumbo Visma wanted to try themselves at the team time trial as well, and uh, because it's it's always good for the cohesion of the team and the solidarity. So, yeah, maybe that these are the reasons why uh, we have the, the, you know, the, those two guys here. Uh, but once again, lessons for the tour, mm, none. Before we go, a very big thank you to all of our Friends of the Podcast subscribers. You may remember we paused collection of subscription renewal payments for three months just to allow us to catch up a little bit on last year's episodes. We've got a plan in place for this year. There's more than 80 episodes on the Friends of the Podcast feed to go back and enjoy. Uh, One that I particularly enjoyed writing and recording was called Paris-Nice and the King, which uh, focuses on Sean Kelly's record run of seven victories in the 1980s. And that was released in 2021, I think it was. So you may need to scroll back a little bit through the feed to find that. The most recent episode featured Francois and I called La Marseillaise, my travelogue, I guess, down to Marseille. And we've got a couple more episodes in the pipeline for the spring period. If you'd like to sign up as a friend of the podcast, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. Your support is very much appreciated and has enabled us to commit to covering the three grand tours and keep all of our various spin-off shows going. Uh, Explore and service course episodes will be coming very shortly. The Cycling Podcast Feminine was back with its February episode last week. That's all from me today. Thank you very much to friends of the podcast, Molly Rowan, Richard Hughes, Jennifer Stitt, Chris Cox, Mark Deakin, Adam Nelson, Nick Holgate, John Finley and Anthony Eckersley. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, You won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. 
Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.